Hello and welcome back to another episode of the History Connection podcast. My name is Michael Musangu, a student at the University of Portland that studies biology and minors in history. Today, I'm going to start with introducing to you a new book. This book I've been reading for the past few weeks, um, probably since last week actually, and I find it really amazing. Um, I'm learning a lot about African American culture and just a lot of things that are going on about around in America and it's really eye-opening just to see the results of where we are right now, but coming from the roots of what started all these, how would you say, polarized issues here in America. It's very educational, and I really hope you would like it. It's called Shame. How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country by Shelby Steele. Shelby Steele is a really fascinating author. He also is one of the, from the great generation of thinkers, Authors like Thomas Sowell, uh, Walter Williams, Condoleezza Rice, etc. So I really hope you like that book. Um, it's really fascinating. I know I liked it myself. And um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Today I'm going to start off with a quote before we get on to our episode. I think you're going to love our episode today. It's going to be fascinating, powerful stuff. But the quote I wanted to preface before we started the episode is, is by Frederick Douglass. It says that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. I'm going to say that one more time. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never will, it never did, and it never will. That quote is powerful, um, very powerful. I, I mean, you could look at this in a few different angles, a few different ways. But I note one thing, that if there is something in power, if there's an entity or a person in power, one way you could look at it is that you the only way that power could be conceding its own power, or itself rather, power could be conceded, is if there is something that demands that power to be conceded. And until then, nothing will happen. And I think you're going to see that a lot in today's episode. Um, I think it's going to be powerful to um, learn about in today's episode because today, in our episode, we're going to be learning about the roots of the Soviet Union with the Russian Revolution. I've been fascinated at learning about this subject for such a long time, and today I finally get the opportunity to disseminate this information. I've been researching this topic for the past few weeks now. And I'm finally happy that I just get to share all my research with you because the roots of what started the Russian Revolution and really what started the, the, the onslaught of communist states here in the world in the 20th century is just powerful. Not very many people know about it. And I think this is something that people should know about. As I've always said, that if you do not know your history, you will not know your future. But let me amend that. If you do not know your history, you will not know your present. Because if you don't know your history, you will not know why you are the way you are right now. And because you don't know your present, neither will you know your future. That said, let's get started on today's episode. So, the Russian Revolution. Right. Um, really, the Russian Revolution is, is the revolution that really started the Soviet Union, what led to the rise of communism as a, as a communist state in Russia. But what's amazing is that Russia was actually the least expected place for the revolution to take place as a communist revolt. 
Karl Marx, when he wrote books like The Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital, he predicted that Britain or even Germany would be the place for where the communist revolution was supposed to happen. But in fact, it was neither one of these places that actually started out the revolution, which is really funny. It actually turned out to be Russia. And I'll actually tell you why. That uh, I think Russia was actually one of these places that really started this Russian communist revolution. And it's because a few things that Marx had said that really didn't, that Russia really didn't fit the picture was that Russia was very agriculturally based, all right? Much of the industry was foreignly, uh, was foreign financed, okay? Furthermore, it was very backward, undeveloped. Um, actually, by the, by the time the Industrial Revolution started taking the world in the mid-19th uh, mid century, Russia didn't start the Industrial Revolution until the 1890s. I mean, most of the world started the Industrial Revolution in the 1840s and 50s, but Russia was actually living on a semi-feudal system that really didn't get abolished until 1861. And most of these peasants actually remained in the status of who they were. And in the, in the context of the world, I mean, imagine being like 40, 50 years behind industrializing as a nation. I mean, you'd also be a little, you know, angry just to not see progress made in your own countries. You see progress made in other countries. You're still struggling for food. Well, I will not go too far in detail. Let me continue because there's so much in this. But Russia was very backward and undeveloped. Um, in 1917, there was a large majority of the populace, actually, that were peasants and industrial workers were a minority. Like I said, the Russian Revolution, uh, the, the Russian Industrial Revolution really didn't start until the 1890s and early 20th century. So you actually didn't see a lot of industrialization until the early 20th century. And that's when you actually saw that industrial workers were a minority. But the workers that were had harsh working conditions, and it was really tough for them. Um, what is amazing is that between 1890 and 1910 was really when it started. And it, the Industrial Revolution actually started taking place in cities like St. Petersburg, which was the, really the, cap, the imperial capital of Russia at the time. And this actually started leading to major increases in population. Now, obviously, you know, increasing population, that's great for your country. But also one of the things you got to note is that, you know, for a city that wasn't really prepared for the Industrial Revolution, you start having overcrowding, right? Most of the, agri most of the country was really agricultural, a lot of peasants who were just farmers living their life. And there weren't even rich farmers. These were farmers who were just living to, you know, farm and make enough food to eat. It's not like they were living. Um, a little more set on that later. Let me not get ahead of myself. I'm super excited. <laughs> but okay. So in St. Petersburg, when the Industrial Revolution started, there was a lot of overcrowding that was going on in the city because, I mean, the destitute living conditions of these workers were just horrible. It was, it was, it was terrible to think about. And like I said, the peasants were freed from serfdom in 1861, and they got a lot of promise of land, okay, and a lot of promise of really more land, housing, you know, like more subsistence living, because, again, they were really living under this feudal system. You had the Russian lords, aristocrats, and then you had the, um, the peasants and those who really farmed and really did all the agricultural work, and they answered to these lords. Now... 
what was amazing is that these families own land, but and, and they had to farm just so they could live. And the result is when people like Alexander the Second, um, Alexander the Second, Alexander the Third, and Nicholas the Second, who were the czars of Russia during these time periods, had made all these promises, there were really no changes. And that's actually what caused a lot of people to revolt. They said, hey, we want these changes. And they said, yeah, sure, we'll give you them. But you never saw them. So most people are wondering, hey, what is going on? Now, historically, let's understand some of the things that are going behind the scenes in Russia that led a lot of people to decide they wanted to revolt. For example, the Crimean War created a lot of food shortages in the 1890s. And of course, we must understand that there were a lot of food shortages as well because the Russian climate is cold, all right? In Russia, it's cold. And growing season, I should mention, is only about four to six months of the year as opposed to like eight to nine in most developed European countries in this time period. So a lot of people, you know, during a war, it's going to be really tough to produce food because you have to all have to send food to soldiers but also if your growing season is only four to six months it's 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 very catastrophic um really at the time and because of the war there was a famine that occurred in 1891 and 1892 ending up with over 400,000 russian deaths and this is um an estimated number, at least, because no one actually knows how many Russian people died because Russia is a huge country and, you know, numbers can never be fully accurate, you know, in this time period. But experts estimate that at least 400,000 Russians died during this time period. It's catastrophic. But because of the famine that occurred in 1891 and 1892, this led to the awakening of Marxism really based in the anger of the public over the response of the government. Because, again, when you go through a famine, you know, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do to live. There's not enough food. And you literally are going to say, hey, um, government, uh, czar, I, I'm, I'm hungry. What, what am I going to eat? And they're like, figure it out yourself. It's like, hold on, hold on. We are your subjects. We are your people. You got to help us out. But unfortunately, they didn't do enough in that sense. And as a result, you saw that a lot of people were getting angry by the things that the government did. And it was unfortunate. Another aspect of what really led to the uh, communist revolution here in Russia was that there was also the Russo-Japanese War. In 1904 and 1905. So another problem is is that Tsar Nicholas II, he was a very imperialistic type man, all right? He also was an autocrat who really liked the centralized rule. He was very absolute, and all the decisions he made went. Now, the problem with this is he also got himself into a lot of wars that never really ended well. Um, and the result of this is a lot of people went hungry, a lot of soldiers died, and it just led to a lot of anger because the public's like, why are you bringing us into wars that you can't win? Because now we're just suffering as a result because of food shortages due to sending food to your soldiers in 
on the front lines. And remember, growing season is only four to six months per year. So whatever remains of that food grown, it has to go to the people. And it's not a lot. So, it, I mean, there was a lot of facets going into this. And that's a, why a lot of people actually were really angry with Tsar Nicholas II at the time. Because the, Ru Rus the, the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 1905 actually led to a lot of animosity between the people as well. Because it weakened Russia. They lost. They lost a lot of soldiers, they lost a lot of money, and they lost a lot of prestige. But most importantly, they lost the war itself because they tried to go and take Manchuria, which is um, in the east, um, right above the Korean Peninsula in that area. They tried to take over Manchuria, and really, it did not work out. Um, and they lost because Russia, or I shouldn't say Russia, Japan was also interested in this idea of imperialism. And they were, and they really woke up in the 1880s and 90s and are like, hey, 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 the whole world is taking over other colonies and making them subject. It's my turn. I am going to also go and take over different colonies in the world. And it will be so fun. We're going to take over the world, over China. We're going to be Japan, you know, big Japan. Like they wanted to do that. So during this time period, now you have Nicholas II, who's czar of Russia, and you have China, or uh, sorry, Japan, who is like a major power now going, hey, I want to start getting into this imperialism game. And Russia's like, I'm already in the game. But they started to clash over Manchuria because Russia or Japan wanted Manchuria. And Russia's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's, no, that's ours. So they really went to a clash over this. And a result is that people started to realize Hey, hold on. We aren't as industrial or as advanced as other, you know, as other countries are. And, you know, the Tsar and his all his aristocratic supporters are living rich. What's going on with this? The people started to get this animosity and it started to get worse and worse. And while the war is going on in in Manchuria and all these things, you have one of the major key players of the Russian Revolution named Vladimir Lenin. He got exiled because, you know, being a member of the Socialist Party in Russia at the time, he tried to do, um, tried to start a little rebellion and he got exiled eventually, but um, he was back. I, I don't think he was exactly back, but while all these things were going on, he was trying to put things together to bring together a socialist revolution that would topple the czar. That was his main goal. He just wanted the czar to go down because the workers are poor. They're hardly getting enough to eat. And he's like, we're going to live. You know, we got to do this. In 1905, the Russian workers who were fed up with autocracy actually led a huge protest called the Bloody Sunday Massacre of 1905. And one of the reasons why I say this is a key important event in the advent of the Russian Revolution is actually most people consider this like the practice run of what is supposed to be the Russian Revolution of 1917. They led this huge protest and what happened is um, basically a radical priest named Georgi Apolonovich Gapon marched 
to the Tsar's Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, Russia, to make demand. And he did this on January 22nd of 1905. And basically, a group of workers led by this priest went to the Tsar's Winter Palace and said, hey, we want better living conditions, we want food, and we demand it now. And they went and started, you know, protesting in front of the Tsar's palace, and a bunch of imperial soldiers basically came and opened fire on the demonstrators, and they killed and wounded hundreds during these demonstrations. And actually, you would think that it would quell most of what is going on. Like, you would think it would quell the the demonstrations and the, the rioting, etc., etc. But in fact, it actually caused more strikes and more riots to break out through the country in outraged response due to the massacre. Because a lot of people who were in Russia were not the industrialized workers. Again, I must repeat, they weren't industrialized until the late or early 20th century. Most of the people who were living in Russia were peasant workers who were farmers, barely making enough to live on themselves. And when they saw that other farmers alike were not able to get... Uh, their demands met, they're like, hold on, you can't do that. We're rioting too. We're going to fight for our right to get food and just basic living. So what's amazing about this is that a lot of strikes in and riots actually broke out in Russia over response to the massacre. And this is where Nicholas II, the Tsar of Russia at the time, he decided to form a series of representative assemblies in English the best way to say it is that he basically kind of made like a parliament. It's called, and it was called a Duma. And basically a legislative body that basically was des was designed to have a semblance of reform. And, and, and it was supposed to be the progress that was supposed to be made. They were supposed to get these um, representative legislative bodies called Dumas. And the legislation was going to be, you know, improving the con working conditions, wages, hours of, li of, of industrial workers, etc. Um, because now that industrial workers are starting to take more of a, how do I say it? They were starting to take more of a, a, a notice in the country as, they, as the Russian Industrial Revolution was growing and growing. There were more industrial workers. And the ones who were working were working 12 to 14 hour days, poor living conditions. They hardly made enough on those 12 to 14 working hours and the conditions were just abysmal so as a result of this Tsar Nicholas II is like okay okay I've got to make my people happy let me do something but the thing is is like he, he didn't care because unfortunately the Russian regime they were very um resistant to this idea of changing okay and with this resistance to change it really they really didn't make much of an effort. Sure, they made Dumas in name and all these, you know, legislative, representative legislatures, but they were just that in name only. There was actually no action behind it. Now, the result of this is, is that it actually just made the animosity between the peasants, the industrial workers, and the and the Russian aristocracy more and more intense. And now you can start to see where these ideas of literally what happens in the Russian Revolution with the socialists taking over the aristocracy and the Russian aristocracy is due to this idea, right? Because what is 
really Karl Marx's center claim in the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital and other um, works of his with Friedrich Engels. The idea is predicated on is predicated on the fact that there are two groups that are fighting for recognition in the world. All right. There's the proletariat, which is the working class, and there's the bourgeoisie. And this is the the high the the high living. These are the people who live off of the capitalist system that give jobs to the workers that are in turn exploited. This was the whole idea. And you can start to see the roots of this into why um, most workers would actually revolt because they're like, hold on, we are getting exploited. What is the aristocracy doing for us? They aren't doing anything. And yet we're still here. So what are you going to do? What are we going to do? Well, we need to fight back. And it took one man named Vladimir Lenin, who's like, I understand what you're going through. Follow me and let's change this country. I'm getting too far ahead of myself. Let me continue. Alrighty. So the aftermath of this 1905 um, bloody massacre on, on, bloody, on Bloody Sunday, <laughs> this massacre that happened, was that it was turned the 1905 Russian Revolution. And of course, it was like really the great rehearsal that foreran the Russian Revolution in 1917. In fact, there were a lot of farm laborers that started to actually have a lot of crippling strikes. Um, soldiers, other workers started to join the cause. And the result of this is that they created a worker-dominated council called the Soviets. Word sounds familiar, huh? Well, we'll get to that in more detail. They created a worker-dominated council called the Soviets. And a famous notable incident that happened during this 1905 revolution is that there was a, a crew on the battleship called Potemkin that staged a successful mutiny against their officers. And this mutiny... Basically, is like they all just decided to leave. They like they literally were like, "Hold on, we're not living well enough." They, I mean, soldiers, industrial workers, and peasants just all didn't live well enough. And yet, you had the aristocracy who was living large and all these things, and didn't do enough to help their people. And thus, it led to them actually mutinizing, performing mutiny. That that battleship crew crazy but you think it couldn't get worse right i mean you'd think hey Tsar nicholas ii created a duma you know these legislative bodies will be able to help these people but they didn't do enough but life didn't get better because when world war one started russia did what it wasn't supposed to do and that was enter the war <laughs> russia entered world war one in support of serbia the french and british but here's the problem. Russia is already reveling from its losses with Japan in the 1904 and 1905 war. And really what's going on with the country at the time, with how everyone's not living well enough, they're poor, um, et cetera, et cetera, the working conditions and such. And though they had some early successes in Austria-Hungary, 
in 1914, there were a lot of weaknesses in equipment. Why? Because they didn't industrialize until the late 19th century and the early 20th century. So their equipment, uh, mainly um, their obsolete weapons, led to a lot of what was causing them to fail in war. They had a lot of obsolete weapons, and it became more and more of a burden because Germany was one of largest places that really had industrialized weapons and of course fighting against germany at this time i mean it was not a good match against you know you're fighting guns with a spear you know like how how are you going to win that unless you're ethiopia but that's a completely different story but you're fighting guns with a spear you know like that's how obsolete their weapons were and of course you can get some people but you need to be able to match them if you want to win, you're going to have to meet them at their level with their type of equipment. And that's what led to their failure. It was a really, it was a really tough part. In 1915, Nicholas II's like, okay, we're struggling here in the war. Morale is low. So let me do something that will help my people take charge. So he took direct command of the army and left his wife, Alexandra, in charge of the government. Yeah, that wasn't a good idea. So he's basically like, I'm going to go on the front lines and lead these people to victory with my obsolete weapons. And, well, you can guess how that turned out. And his wife, Alexandra, who was a German, let me note that, she was a German and Russians didn't like Germans. So let's just say that idea didn't work out very well. <laughs> We're going to get to that a little later. So Tsar Nicholas II in 1915 is like, I'm going to go fight. I'm going to boost their morale. We're going to win this war. Yeah. But by October 1916, Russia had lost about 1.6 million soldiers. 2 million were prisoners of war. 1 million were missing. Like, that's just insane. I mean... Of course, the morale of the military would be low. I mean, you have a 1.6 million dead soldiers, comrades who were working with you. You got 2 million of your own men captured. You got 1 million of your men missing. Man, that's just crazy. Yes, and it did. It destroyed the morale. They were wondering what they were going to do. And because of this, you actually saw a lot of mutinies occurring. You saw a lot of soldiers going hungry. Because again, with war, they the peasants had the farming peasants had to deliver food to the soldiers, and because of this, that caused also a lot of animosity with them because they're also struggling to eat. So the soldiers were going hungry. They didn't have enough shoes. Their equipment and ammunition was obsolete, and not to mention the cold Russian winters really didn't help very much. But on the workers' side. You had a lot of food production, but it was, no, I shouldn't say a lot of food production. The food production that they had was really low. And the problem is, is now you're sending a conscription. And as we learned from a few episodes back, conscription means to mandatorily require military service. So now you have forced conscription and who was it sending to the front lines of the military. It was sending the workers that were involved with food production. And these were the skilled workers involved with food production. 
And of course, this caused poor harvests. Because, I mean, an experienced farmer can do so much better than a farmer who's just learning how to do the trade. I mean, they will definitely grow stuff, but it won't be in, in as high a yield probably as an experienced farmer. And that's what led to a lot of hunger and famines during this time period. Unfortunately, it, get wor it gets worse. And it's not made better because now, during this time period, there are a lot of riots starting to go on in the cities. And workers started to abandon cities in search for food. And of course, Tsar Nicholas II is like, hey, okay, this is terrible. But, you know, I'm living okay. So, you know, don't mind me. And that type of mentality is what I believe led to the Russian Revolution starting. Soldiers also struggle with the minimal equipment they had. They were obsolete. And really, that's all he wanted to do. Nicholas II is like, look, I'm trying to boost their morale by taking command. And it didn't work. And furthermore, he was blamed for the fact, or I should say he was blamed for the failures that occurred and the support that he had from all his supporters, mainly the aristocracy and maybe from the people who, you know, are like, you know, long live the king or long live the czar, rather. The all his supporters started to dwindle. And this led to a lot of, again, animosity and and problems going on in this of this sort. During the absence of Nicholas, Tsarina Alexandra, who was in charge of the government, was very unpopular because she was German. So she started to fire elected officials and take charge because she was like, hey, if you don't like me, remember, I'm empress, so get out. <laughs> so she started to do that. And who was the advisor that was putting her up to these things? It was none other than Rasputin. Yes, Rasputin. I'm sure you've all heard of the man. He was a very, very interesting guy. I've looked into his history. Um, I may do an episode on him because it's kind of weird. <laughs> but basically, Rasputin, in short, I'll give you a little background. He was basically this Christian guy who basically was part of this weird, like, I shouldn't say weird because there are a lot of weird things going on in the world, but he was part of this extreme sect of Christianity that basically said, if you want to live in true forgiveness from God, you have got to really sin. So they would do like terrible things, um, probably not even speakable. But the key is, is, this is where he started his roots and this led to him. He also was considered a faith healer, so he would um, pray for the sick and whatever, and they would get well. And this is where, actually, the Romanovs were like, hey, we may need you. Because, as you know, Tsar Nicholas II had a son, one boy, and a bunch of girls. But he had one son named Alexei, and he had hemophilia. The result of this is... He clotted, or he didn't clot a lot, rather, but he started bleeding a lot, and um, he was really sick, a sickly child, and he was ready to die at one point. So they asked Rasputin for help and basically said, hey, we would like for you to pray for him and, you know, help him get well. And, of course, Rasputin went, spoke to them, worked with the, with the child, and he got well. 
So the Russian royal family started to use the services of Rasputin a lot more. And because of this, he actually started to gain notoriety as well with the public because the Romanovs and the higher up Russian elected officials and aristocrats really liked him for the fact that for some reason, anytime they called on him, if someone was sick, they would get well. And most of it and most historians attribute it to the fact that he was considered a faith healer in the time. Very fascinating. Anyways, so because of this, Rasputin started to gain a lot of notoriety and he actually became an advisor to the Romanov family. As a result, he started to increase his influence over everything involved in Russian politics and the Romanov family in general. Now, because of this, the Russian nobles basically were like, um, you're taking too much influence, so we're going to kill you. And basically, on the 30th of December, 1916, they killed him. They literally murdered him. And, of course, by the end of 1916, again, with all the men dead, a bunch of men missing, and a bunch of men captured, a lot of food shortages, all the skilled farmers had to get conscripted into the army, or into the military, I should say. A lot of faith was lost in the leadership of the Tsar. And you now put in place a Tsarina, who is German, and you don't like the Germans. So, how are you supposed to do anything, really? I mean, how are we supposed to like the government? They're not helping us. It just led to a lot of animosity. Just getting worse and worse and worse. On March 8th, 1917, you have protesters that were wanting some bread. Bread, people. They were clamoring for bread. And they decided to go out into the streets of Petrograd. Why is it called Petrograd? Now, St. Petersburg is the name of the city. It's actually called St. Petersburg. But I should note... That, again, they were fighting a war against the Germans. And St. Petersburg, to the Russians, accordingly, sounded too German. So they decided to change the name to Petrograd. Now, the result of this is... Um, they changed the name to Petrograd. And it was changed in 1914. Now, anyways. March 8th, 1917. They started... Uh, some protesters who wanted bread started protesting in the streets of Petrograd. And industrial workers went on strike as well and refused to leave until their demands were met. Now, before I continue a little further, I said it was called the February Revolution. Yet it happened on March 8th, 1917. One thing I must note, the Russians were using the Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar at the time. So on the Gregorian, on the Gregorian calendar, it was the 23rd of February when the, the February Revolution started. So, yes, it did technically start in February, which is why it's called that. But to us Gregorian calendar users, it started on March 8th, 1917. Now, these industrial um, workers were in the streets with the peasants and all these other farm workers. And three days later, on the 11th of March, the troops of Petrograd, of the Petrograd army, were called to calm the uprising. What's fascinating is that some, pro some protesters were killed by the regiments opening fire. But because the protesters were so resolved not to leave the streets, they eventually began to waver and basically said, you know what, forget it, we're not going to do that. <laughs> so the 
the response by the regiment of the Russian military basically is like, nope, forget it. And they stopped. On the 12th of March, the Duma began to form a provisional government. And it was basically taken over by, um, by literally the liberals and the socialists who partnered up with the liberals who wanted a, basically they wanted a more democratic government because the autocracy was not working very well, as you saw the results. And <clears throat> the Duma, which is the legislative body, they decided to form a provisional government. They basically just took over. And they basically created the system of a democratically executed, elected executive and having a constituent assembly that answers to it. This new government was re that basically replaced the Tsar was led by Georgi Evgenievich Lvov. Man, I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian very well, so forgive me if I said that wrong. But basically, with this, with the advent of this taking over the Duma, Tsar Nicholas II basically abdicated because he realized if he didn't, he was going to get killed. So he basically abdicated and ran away. And when his and Evgenievich Lvov basically became leader of this new provisional government, and his government failed. So a socialist named Alexander Kerensky took over. And one thing to note about Kerensky is that he was a Menshevik. Now, who are the Mensheviks? Well, has any of, have any of you heard of the term Bolshevik? Yes. Well, these were the two main socialist parties that were in Russia at the time. You had the Mensheviks and you had the Bolsheviks. They were the two main leaders of the uh, two main factions, I should say, of the Russian socialist movement that were beginning in the 20th century. The Mensheviks were led by Julius Martov, and basically he they argued that a collaboration with the high class bourgeoisie was necessary, and you and they wanted to have an inclusive party, and wanted to have a transition period from czar from czarism absolute czarism right to communism they were very moderate right they, they they were like hey we believe in socialism too but we cannot do it in one night so when we transfer from having a czar to becoming a uh, communist country let's have a little transition period we'll figure it out we'll move into it slowly everyone will be happy the bolsheviks led by vladimir lenin back again <laughs> led by Vladimir Lenin, he argued that for revolution, uh, he argued for revolution. He was very Marxist in ideology because actually Karl Marx argued, hey, it, the only way this is going to happen is, the only way that a communist state will happen is if a revolution goes forth. You workers need to revolt. And L Lenin was a Marxist to the core. Very Marxist. So he argued for revolution. He led, led for and controlled by the proletariat or the working class. And he wanted an exclusive party, no inclusion, with the, with the, with the bourgeoisie or the, rich, or the upper class, right, the capitalists, so-called. And he also wanted it only formed, this exclusive party, only to be formed by the revolutionaries and wanted a direct change, right? That was the key between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks. They wanted a direct change into communism, and it had to be radical. 
had to be done in the hands of a revolution. It had to be violent because that's the only way you can get the change that you need. It's through violent taking of power by the people for the people. Again, now Kerensky, when he started this new government, he establishes this new law of government that had a liberal program of rights. Um, it also had, um, with this liberal program, you know, freedom of speech, equality before the law, etc., etc. But unfortunately, Russia's continuing Russia's continual involvement in World War One really wasn't a very good thing because unrest just continued to grow and grow because you had to have these workers who were creating food constantly support a Russian military that's not really winning. So there was a lot of unrest as this was going on. Now, in October of 1917, as it's called the October Revolution, it actually began on our regular calendar, the Gregorian calendar, on the 6th and 7th of November, 1917, the key is, is that it happened. And revolutionaries who were led by Vladimir Lenin launched a coup d'etat that was basically bloodless against the Duma's provisional government. And the provisional government was led um, really by leaders from Russia's bourgeois capitalist class. And Lenin called for a Soviet government, right, this council, that would be ruled directly by the working class soldiers peasants workers the proletariat okay and the bolsheviks and their allies basically went and started occupying government and strategic other places in the city and basically in in petrograd at the time and basically just formed this new government with lenin at its head now, the result of this is that he basically became a dictator of the world's first communist state. And civil war actually broke out after this. Yeah, man, it's, it's crazy. The Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 really was what led to the advent of communism becoming a state in Russia, right? It led to the creation of the communist state. But after this civil war broke out, and who did civil war really break out? The factions in the fight were between the Red and White Armies. The Red Army fought for the Bolsheviks and Lenin, and the White Army fought, were really the representative allied forces that wanted monarchy, capitalism, and democracy, socialism, that sort of thing, okay? They were allies, they were loosely allied, but the key is, is they're all like, we do not want a Bolshevik government. That, that was the key that they realized. And while the civil war was happening, all these things were going on, but it was on the 16th of July, 1918, that the Romanovs were executed by the Bolsheviks. And not long after this, another famine occurred. And this occurred in 1921 to 1922. And this was when Lenin was already in power at the time. And one could argue, you know, that... The advent of the famine was due to Lenin, but I don't think it was all completely due to Lenin. It was more economic, war, the, the whole Bolshevik revolution, the civil war going on. All of these different factors led to the famine, but it led to 5 million deaths. 
And of course, there was a lot of unrest in the time. And that's why the Bolsheviks literally got up and said, hey, we can bring you to a better life. Communism, where no land is owned by the capitalistic class. Everything's by the people, for the people. I'll be your elected official, delegating and rationing. This, there's no inequalities. Everyone will be living the same. Life is great. And when this happened, um, after the famine, the Russian Civil War ended in 1923, and Lenin's Red Army claimed victory, and the Soviet Union was established. Quite a fascinating story. I, I think it's one of the most interesting things I've ever heard about because, I mean, the ideology was very, very basic. They just wanted to see the advent of better working and living conditions. And Lenin basically said, hey, I'll offer you that, but let me be in charge. Let me show you how to do it. All right, we got to take power. Nothing's owned by the, everything's public. Not, there's no exploitation of the working class. Everyone gets the same. And we're going to see how life works. I hope you enjoyed that. Today, today's episode was one of my most favorite episodes I've ever done, and we'll be continuing on in this vein as I'll, next week I'll be doing um, what happened after Lenin, leading to Holodomor, and the rise of another Russian dictator named Joseph Stalin. But apart from that, I hope you had a great day. Thank you for listening to the History Connection podcast. I'm Michael Musangu. See you next time.